The date is June 15th, 1989. The album is Nirvana's Bleach. This is the Wet Bandits Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Wet Bandits podcast, where today it feels a little sacrilegious to play the theme song. It's just me. It's just me today. It's Wheezy. Uh, Normally, this podcast is two-fifths of the Wet Bandits. Today, it's a mere one-fifth, a mere 20% of the greatest 90s cover band in the world, the Wet Bandits. Uh, Like I said, this is the Wet Bandits podcast. This is a discography podcast featuring 90s bands. Uh, Our definition of a 90s band is somewhat loose. As long as the band has released a studio album in the 90s, we consider them a 90s band. So you won't hear the band Shocking Blue. You might hear them mentioned, but you won't hear their discography. You won't hear a Post Malone discography, but you might hear, and today you will hear the start of a Nirvana discography. So uh, we put on Instagram that this day obviously had to come. If you're going to do a 90s podcast, I think, especially if you're talking rock music, people immediately assume that everything you do is going to relate back to Nirvana in some way. I have to admit that I'm not the biggest Nirvana uh, completist in the world. I'm a completist about most things in my life. Uh, My favorite podcast, the Blank Check podcast, which is filmographies, which I totally stole their idea to do this podcast unashamedly uh they do they do director filmographies and i try to watch every single movie that that they talk about and i listen to every single episode they do even the episodes that i don't that are about things i don't care about you know they'll they'll go through the whole marvel cinematic universe and i don't really care for the marvel movie i I like them i definitely like them more now that i've listened to the podcast and and frankly that's the purpose of this podcast, which I've said a million times, and but it bears repeating, especially if this is... We, we hope to bring in new listeners by doing uh, a historic band like Nirvana on this podcast. Um, what we really try to do is bring to the forefront some of the stuff that people might have forgotten about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Bleach, in many ways, that I'm going to talk about today, fits in that category, especially for people like me, who I'm a huge '90s music fan. Uh, I I loved the grunge bands, whether you like that term or not. The term that was a, the bands that were attached to that term, I, I generally was a fan of. And I never owned Bleach. I, I was really just a Nevermind in utero guy, and I didn't even really listen to in utero much. So honestly, I'm more of a Nevermind fan than I am a Nirvana fan. There might even be people who are just Smells Like Teen Spirit fans, you know, or Lithium fans. I know Lithium has a has a big following. We won't talk about ne- Nevermind that much. We, we've we actually covered Nevermind on this podcast before. So uh, that was in our 
it was we named it our best sophomore album of the '90s, unsurprisingly. So we won't cover much. Nevermind. Uh, we will do another Nevermind episode. That'll be the next episode. We're gonna cover. Uh, we're gonna cover Butch Vig's influence on Nevermind. We're calling it the Nevermind colon the Butch Vig effect. Uh, after that, we'll do Insecticide, which isn't a traditional studio release. It is. It's more. Uh, demos and b-sides kind of but it was released uh because of the popularity of nevermind and and has mostly new stuff on it so we'll cover that one too um after that we'll do in utero then another thing we don't often do is is live albums but we are going to cover unplugged in new york just because it's you might call it groundbreaking maybe in a different way it's not like nirvana was the first to do unplugged but that has to be the most famous unplugged performance then we'll do the muddy banks of the wishka We'll do that because, as we'll talk about when we get to that episode, that was meant to be released with Unplugged as sort of like uh, sister albums. And and we might talk about the Redding performance as well uh, in that episode, sort of, sort of do a double episode with the Muddy Banks. So that's what we're looking at for this, for this discography. Now, I've already mentioned it's just me today. Sam's not here. We had set up a 9 o'clock recording time and which Sam's young and and hot stuff and you know he's got a life out outside of the podcast and I do have a life outside of the podcast but but those things generally happen during people's normal waking hours right like uh I have a little three-year-old almost three-year-old at home and a wife and they are fine if I do things early or late, <laughs> but as long as, as long as it doesn't get as much in the way of uh, not spending you know or spending my time with them. Sam, on the other hand, might his a lot of his life takes place during those same hours. Uh, obviously, when we're out playing with the band, that's very late at night, and you know he probably likes to sleep in because he likes to stay out late. So. I'm I'm just speculating as to what's going on. All I know is that I showed up at his apartment this morning. I I'm in a light knocker. I don't I'm not, you know, tap tap taparoo, but he should have been able to hear me. In fact, I thought I heard him cough and then maybe like like maybe he had just gotten out of the shower or something, which has happened before. So I waited. I actually texted him. I texted him. I should back up. I texted before I left. I said, "On my way, RN." which is how I know the cool young people text that RN means right now. No response. So I got there. I did a light light knock. No response other than I thought I heard him inside. And I just waited for a little bit. I could have opened the door. But again, with the late night stuff, I didn't know if maybe he had a backstage Betty over. And so I just sad. I, th- I thought better of it. And I, I waited outside the door for a little bit and waited to see if he'd text me back. And then I started hearing like like a vacuum noise. I knew he wasn't clean. And it wasn't loud enough to be a vacuum, but that's what it sounded like. And then I and then I realized it was rhythmic. And then I put my ear next to the door and it was like oh, God, he's sleeping. He's on he's in his front room sleeping. So I could have woken him up if I pounded really hard, but I thought an episode with me fully awake might be better than an episode with me fully awake and annoyed. 
<laughs> and and Sam half awake. So that's what that's what we're gonna get today. If you don't like it, hit us up on Wet Bandits Pod Instagram and just bash Sam. Like Sam, what are you doing? You have a responsibility. You made a commitment, and to waking up at the crack of noon, or in this case, the crack of nine, and recording a podcast once a week for like an hour. So please do that, Wet Bandits Pod. Obviously, uh, give us a follow if you could. You're, I'm sure you've enjoyed this first nine minutes. If you are just like this is the kind of half-assed commitment that I can get on board with, please hit the subscribe button, rate five stars only, or else you can eat shit. Let's get into Bleach. Uh, Bleach is the now pretty well-known debut from Nirvana on Sub Pop. It was released, like uh, we said at the beginning of the episode, on June 15th, 1989. Just a little bit of background for what was going on on that date in music history. The number one song on the Billboard charts was Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler. Very famous, very sappy. Number one mainstream rock song on the Billboard charts was The Doctor from the Doobie Brothers. Top five albums. The number one album on that date was The Raw and the Cooked by Fine Young Cannibals. Number two, Don't Be Cruel, Bobby Brown. Number three was the Beaches sound or I'm sorry, Beaches soundtrack. Number four is Full Moon Fever by Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers classic. And number five was like a prayer by Madonna. So you definitely are, with the exception of Tom Petty, and really Fine Young Cannibals, I guess. It's really, you know, Bobby Brown and Madonna that are that are more the typical late 80s solo artist and and if you look at more of the you know even deeper into the top albums on that date that's the kind of musical culture you're you're looking at and it's not original to say that in many ways this grunge movement which is the word i'm going to use whether or not again whether or not people like it or appreciate it uh that's the word we're going to use because everybody understands what we're talking about when we say that the grunge movement did really changed the musical landscape, at least as far as what was mega popular in, you know, rock and roll or whatever. So Bleach did not chart, unsurprisingly. It was on a very small uh, label called Sub Pop. And and that, and that's the story of the history around the time. The, the album title Bleach came from an AIDS prevention poster the Cobain saw while the band was driving through San Francisco, it was essentially advising heroin addicts to bleach your works. That's the, uh, uh, I guess that's the term for making sure you bleach your needles before you share them. There's a lot of background that's sort of, that's really difficult to decide if it's important or not where where it pertains to the history of Nirvana, the history of, the, of Bleach and how, um, how Nevermind shapes up after this um mostly because I, I think it's really difficult to figure out when kurt cobain is being genuine and when he's he's purposely sort of uh he's he's purposely deflecting or he's he's perf- he's he's sending a smoke screen right that you can pull quotes that he loves this and hates that and and they seem to be contradictory from time to time so what I think the only thing you can do, the only the only way that I think we can look through these albums is to really just take the music for what it is, which which seems kind of sap. 
but we're we're trying to analyze the art, right? And whatever the intention was, in some way the art was meant for us to digest. And if this is the product we were given, that's really the only thing that we can judge. It it seems like a fool's errand to to also try to judge it based on the things Cobain says about it retros retroactively. So I'm going to do my best to try to just take the songs that they as they are, um, provide a little background just so just so you know the story of it, but really just kind of say, look, this is what it sounds like, and this might be why. Okay. A little more background on the album. There's two guitar players on the on the album cover, and and obviously only one guitar player. If you know any uh, anything about Nirvana's lineup, it's always a three piece: Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and or Novoselic, and uh, three different drummers. Uh, the the drummer on this album, Chad Channing. And he he is on Insecticide also, but Insecticide's a collection of drummers. Chad Channing's the drummer on this album. And so there's your three-piece, but there's two guitar players. And (laughs) one made it on the album cover. Or, I'm sorry, there are two people on the album cover both playing guitar. The second one is Jason Everman, who, who had, like, a funny sort of internet resurgence as the guy who was in Nirvana and Soundgarden. The story is, it's not that interesting other than he was for a short time and never on an album for either band. Um, The story with Bleach is that he actually funded the recording for Bleach. And Nirvana kind of, quote unquote, like wanted him. They were happy to have him. That's why he ends up on the album cover because according to Novoselic, they wanted him to feel comfortable as part of the band. So they put him on the album cover. However, he never they end up you know sending him away and he's never on the album at all other than visually on the cover art from from the get-go kurt regarding bleach is sort of playing the you know there's industry pressure to make his music a certain way he says that there was pressure to make this album grunge um and it it forced him to suppress some of his pop sensibilities which i think is funny i think it's a weird thing because the root of pop is eddie van halen has has often said and i'm sure others too but when eddie van halen has to defend van halen's music for its massive popularity he says well you know we make pop music like i know some people call us metal but we're we're pop we're it's popular that's what pop comes from and and it's funny that kurt ostensibly had no desire to be popular but he's annoyed that he had pressure to make his to remove pop sensibility from his music and make it heavier. And and of course, every grunge band hates that their music is labeled grunge. They all complain that they're labeled grunge. And and grunge is hard to define because it's it's made up. I mean, they're all all labels for music are made up, but but grunge came from a I think it was a Rolling Stone article where the author just sort of like as a throwaway remark said that you know described the sound as grunge which wasn't really like a word that applied to music in any way it was just like you know dirty and and 
how a lot of people took that to mean probably accurately is a lot of these bands, especially on sub pop, which is where you know, in Seattle where grunge was developing, didn't have a lot of money to clean up the sound. So it was raw and sort of dirty and unproduced, underproduced. And so, you know, that's how you end up with the term grunge, which, which I, I actually think maybe this is just the influence that, you know, uh, using it over time and sort of like associating it with the sound. And so it's like a backwards confirmation, but I think it's a pretty apt description for, for a lot of the early uh, Seattle band sound is, is it sounds like raw and, and dirty. With that being said, I think a lot of people, because Nevermind is the most popular grunge album and Pearl Jam has, you know, whether at the time or over the course of history, has become the most popular grunge band. I think people associate the grunge sound with those things. And those things are probably the least grunge (laughs) of not the least. There's certainly bands that came out of the grunge arena that were, that had a less dirty sound, but Pearl Jam is essentially an arena rock, like classic rock band. And nevermind is the, is the, poppiest of the Nirvana albums. So so they are they're probably as far from grunge as that term was meant to indicate. As a starting point it's effective. If you google what grunge music is, what you end up with is punk a fusion of punk and metal, right? And if you listen to a lot of those earlier Seattle bands, that's kind of what you get. It's it's more metal than people expect. And you definitely definitely see that on bleach. Uh, Nirvana is in the in their earliest stages much heavier than I think people think of Nirvana even though I don't think anyone thinks Nirvana isn't heavy if you follow all that. Um in bleach just like pretty much every other Nirvana album about 80% of the lyrics were written the night before the recording. Uh Kurt and this is a big influence on Dave Grohl I think in Foo Fighters. Kurt the lyrics mattered to him the least of of anything else, and he often did them last, often very soon before having to record them to tape. So Dave Grohl does a very similar thing with Foo Fighters where the lyrics are last and sometimes they come in uh, very late. So with Bleach specifically, Kurt, a, a lot of the lyrics are basically sort of like what he was feeling in the very short time before he ended up having to record the album. And so... What what you kind of get is themes that are pretty much the same all the way through. Anyway, let's get into the album now. It's been it's been a full twenty three minutes. You'd think without Sam, I could speed this up, but no. Uh, <laughs> the The first song on on Bleach is Blue B L E W, um, which is a great kickoff tune. So here's Blue.
So a lot of people are familiar with Blue from Muddy Banks. Um, it, it was released kind of as a single after the fact. What we really see right from the beginning is that Chad Channing is no Dave Grohl. I'm going to spend a lot of this episode kind of crapping on Chad Channing, which I can't drum. Like, and and maybe it was all on purpose. I do think that's possible. If if Cobain was really interested, or and the band, if they had sort of a unified thought process, and their goal really was to subvert popular music, then Chad Channing's drums are definitely a way to do it. Um, there's a lot of like. What's the word I'm looking for? There's just a lot of bad tempos, uh, tempo fluctuations and bad rhythm figures, like sloppy rhythm figures. Even even in just the beginning of Blue that we just played through, like leading in, uh, coming out of the chorus, back into the second verse, he does this like little triplet fill thing and it's sloppy as could be. But it's still, you, what you see is if you if you're familiar with Muddy Banks or you've heard any of the live stuff or live versions of Blue what you see is the band gets a lot better it whether it's just practice or whether it's the addition of Dave Grohl later on but the band gets better pretty quickly and and the live versions of Blue even though they're not quite as heavy as this one I do like this version because it's so like dark and thick but the tightness of the band is clear after this. Uh, this is this is kind of a definitely like the birth of a good band, but but not not polished at all. I think probably the song that most people are familiar with from this album is about a girl, which is the third track on here. Here's what it sounds like. Most people are familiar with the acoustic version from Unplugged. This is obviously a more electric version. What I really like about the lo-fi aesthetic of Nirvana is that when they switch from the open chords of the verse into the chorus, and it's just power chords, but they're undistorted, so you lose a lot of the volume, they don't do anything to fix that. It just sounds like real tinny and crappy, but the melody is so good. Like, Bleach is a great way to show people, like, hey, Cobain is a fantastic songwriter. What's a little different about this song from the unplugged version is that it really opens up at the solo and the distortion comes in and then it stays for the rest of the song. So it kind of turns into a heavier song near the end. The fourth song on this album is School, 
which is is the opener for the Muddy Banks album, which, oh man, what a killer opener for a show, too. Recently, during all this, this COVID madness, Post Malone and Travis Barker and a couple of friends of theirs did a live concert from someone's home or something where all they did was Nirvana tunes. And I was very skeptical, and it was pretty great. I think Travis Barker was actually kind of like the weak point, but Post Malone, man, I I was shocked at how well he he pulled off the Nirvana aesthetic. And I was hoping against hope that they played school, and they did, and it kind of ruled. I have been a big school fan uh, since Muddy Banks, but I, I never, I don't know, I'm kind of ashamed, but I never went so far as to buy Bleach because of that, to kind of like find the beginning of that or the genesis of that song. I bought this album just to record this podcast, and and School is good, but it's a lot different. So here's the album version of School. So earlier when I was saying maybe Chad Channing's poor drumming choices are an effect to subvert, are an attempt, not an effect, are an attempt to subvert like pop music sensibilities, if there's a good argument for <laughs> to be made for that, it's this. It's school. Listen to the tempo drop when they get to the chorus here. In in live music, uh, when 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 our band plays together, we call that dropping anchor, and we never mean it in a good way. <laughs> if if the just the way that tempo slows so dramatically at the start of a brand new spot is just so unconventional. I can't imagine why they would do it, other than. It's not on purpose. It's it, other than maybe it's bad drumming, um, or they're intentionally trying to like jar you w- for positive or negative. You know, make you upset that you wanted something different, or to be like so impressed that they would have the audacity to do something like that. I think it's telling that in the live versions of the song, once girl joins, they don't do it anymore. So whether whether they were pressured, I don't know why you'd be pressured to do a song a different way live, but I don't know. Maybe there's, <laughs> I know, I just can't imagine it. The only thing I can think is that either Grohl, Dave Grohl, really wanted to just drive through the song and, and change that aspect of it. And because the rest of the band respected him, they acquiesced to that. Or 
Dave's just a better drummer and did it. <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah, that's better. Uh, here's that clip one more time. Song's still pretty cool. The promotional single from this album is Love Buzz, which is a cover of a shocking blues song. I didn't realize when I heard this that this was a cover. I think it's really Nirvana-y, though. The fact that basically the song is one chord, for for one thing. I, I think the little guitar uh, lick that's that's in the intro there is distinctly Cobain. Uh, it sounds difficult, but it's probably just a bunch of slop. Th- this album is full of guitar solos that I could never play. And it's not because Kurt Cobain is such a better guitar player than I am. It's because he doesn't care how sloppy it is. There's a lot of like impossible rhythm figures to know, unless you've just listened to it so much that it's like seared in your brain how to basically ignore <laughs> more traditional phrasing, which is... So, I mean, I guess maybe it's not that. I was going to say it's very strange because his phrasing is so perfect lyrically. But the fact is he's a stronger singer than he is a guitar player. So maybe that maybe those two go hand in hand. If you've never heard the Shocking Blue version of that song, which I never had, it sounds like this. Would you believe me? Weird song, right? Uh, kind of trippy, I guess. If if I could use that word to describe that, I I, I think it's trippy. There, there's sitar later, which makes it you know very kind of flower power sounding, I guess. But it's dark. It's really dark. Um, but yeah, I wasn't familiar with that that tune before uh, I was reading up on Bleach and found out that that was a cover. So that was Love Buzz. We've skipped we skipped over Floyd the Barber and I, I don't think we need to hear it. I if if you think I was wrong, hit us up on Wet Bandit's Pod on Instagram. But um there there's a couple other well, maybe just one other song on here that's real I not real popular, but popular enough that it ended up on Muddy Banks and people might be familiar with it. That's negative creep. 
Again, cool song full of like pretty mediocre drum fills, but <laughs> okay, no more crapping on Chad Channing. It's a cool song. You can see the beginning of what Kurt Cobain ends up being, which is this fabulous songwriter with really poppy jams in sort of like a metal background. I mentioned earlier how how grunge music is maybe the true quote-unquote, grunge music is maybe a little heavier than what people think of when they think of grunge. My, my favorite band, as I've said many times on this podcast, is Alice in Chains. And I remember specifically reading an article when Green Day was at their like, peak. So Insomnia is getting released, um, or Insomniac, sorry. Insomniac's getting released after Dookie is massively popular. And, and Billy Joe Armstrong was kind of, I can't remember the context of why he was talking about grunge, but he was sort of angrily saying like, Allison Chains isn't, these bands aren't grunge. Allison Chains isn't grunge. Have you ever been to an Allison Chains show? They're a metal band. And at the time I was like, oh man, that sucks. Cause I didn't think metal was cool. Now I kind of like metal, but at the time I was like, oh man, what, it, why was he taking shots at Allison Chains like that? And what's funny now <laughs> is that in a way by him declaring them metal he almost made them more grunge than what people typically give them credit for Allison Chains sort of starting as a glam rock band and just like instead of going the Motley Crue route and getting really produced and really like polished sounding they went mega dark and mega dirty and they ended up and metal and in many ways, I think you could argue they are the grungiest of the grunge bands. But you hear a couple songs on Bleach, such as Paper Cuts, um, Swap Meat a little bit, it, that are really Alice in Chains sounding. Here's Paper Cuts.
So I don't usually play a clip for a full minute 45, but I wanted to get through all the parts of that so you could hear like that song could fit on Allison Chain's like three-legged dog album. And then you've got Sifting, which is the last one on the original Bleach release that's pretty Allison Chainsy metal. song and a great way to finish the album i think kind of unfortunately when when the album was uh re-released well once nevermind exploded there was a lot of oh we got to get more nirvana out there so uh they put out insecticide geffen puts out insecticide which is you know their demo cuts and whatnot and they re-release bleach and and they add two songs which are good they add big cheese and Downer, which are, are both cool songs, but Sifting is a great way to end this album. And I think it would, would have been better just to leave it that way. And Downer was on Incesticide also. I think I've said Insecticide a couple times, but Incesticide. Downer was on Incesticide anyway. And Big Cheese, you know, throw it on there, put it on a B-side for a single or something. But, I mean, they're both good songs, but Sifting is just such a strong album closer that I think I would have left it there. When I do cover cut Hidden Gem, I'm not really going to consider Big Cheese and Downer part of this album. So otherwise, I would just cut one of the two of those because I think Sifting should be last. But uh, So th- those, are, those are heavy uh, Alice in Chains-y type songs. And, and granted, maybe as an Alice in Chains fan, I hear that I'm more ready to look for that <laughs> than, than other fans might be. But uh, they're... You know, there's a bunch of strong songs on here that um, are heavier than what Nirvana fans are typically used to. And I think if Kurt was trying to, again, subvert pop music or pop sensibilities, I I think in a lot of ways those heavy songs are the illustration of that attempt. You know, ultimately they become the most popular band in rock for a little while, so... You know, you can't be the most popular band in anything without being a pop band on some level. And and maybe it, the, it was a blessing and a curse that he's such a good songwriter. Again, it's all speculation. It's all speculating whether he really didn't ever want to be famous um, or, or, you know, how much he wanted his music to be heard. It's it's really hard. Let's, uh, let's get right to the cover cut Hidden Gems. So if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, when Sam and I ter- are together... We do uh, a cover 
a cut and a hidden gem. And what that means is we pick a song from the album that we would cover in our band if if we could. Like this, we are only a 90s cover band, and this album was released in 1989. So we would not cover any of these. But if we could, we pick one. Uh, we pick one that we would cut from the album. And and we try to think of that in the context of how the album plays out. The cut isn't usually our least favorite song. It, it's the one that we think, if you remove it from the album, the the flow of the album suffers the least. Often, I would like that to be the <laughs> my least favorite album, but it doesn't always happen that way. And then the hidden gem, the hidden gem is the song that wasn't released as a single that is basically your favorite song. So on an album like this, the hidden gem's pretty easy because really blue, we're going to count blue as a single, even though it, it kind of wasn't. It, it wasn't released until after, again, the, the popularity of Nevermind. But uh, Love Buzz was the promotional single, so that's that's the other one, the other single from this album. So without further ado, if I was going to cover one of these, uh, I would want the Wet Bandits to do School. School just it rocks so hard. Um, it's it's just like basic rock and roll, and I, I think it's such a good encapsulation of what you can do with four lyric lines and a great chord progression and, and good dynamics. So I wouldn't do it the way that Nirvana does it here. And that's why I wouldn't... I, it was hard for me to be like, is school what I would want to cover? Is that a hidden gem or what? The, this... When I talk about hidden gems, I'm talking about the recording, and I think this recording is not great, mostly because of the tempo change at the chorus. So I would put School as as the cover because then we'd have Slammy B doing the drums and keeping that tempo in a more Dave Grohl-esque uh, steady through the chorus uh, tempo than Chad Channing's way of doing it. So I would cover School. The, the one I'd cut is... is Mr. Mustache, which I haven't played yet, but but here's a clip of Mr. Mustache. not a terrible song it's this one bores me the most uh the the riff is not that interesting to me like i it moves which is kind of unique for this album but i don't really have any problem cutting it because i think the i think the album has enough different stuff in it that it doesn't need that song to for a change of pace and it's just, it's okay. It, it bores me, actually. It's a little monotonous, even though it's kind of quick. And uh, my hidden gem for this album is actually about a girl, um, which we've already played through. But th- like I said, it's it's kind of not the hidden gem because it's maybe the song that people are most familiar with from this album because of Unplugged. But but it wasn't a single. Um, and so I, I I do think it's probably like, the best little pop song on here because Sam's not here 
<laughs> and he just texted me and said, yo, bro, I'm sorry. <laughs> because Sam's not here, I'm going to pick two, which is cheating. But I also haven't played a clip from this yet. But Scoff comes in a close second for me. This is Scoff. Like, what a hard riff, you know? <laughs> that that riff just has so much guts behind it. So I, I'm a big fan of that one, too. That would be my, like, runner-up for Hidden Gems. So that's it. We've we've covered Bleach. Uh, sans Sam. It, it You know, we've had a real run of bad episodes here, so hopefully you guys are okay with just listening to me for this one and probably the next one, too. But <laughs> but we'll we'll see if I have to re-record the next one based on uh, the reaction to this one, I suppose. So normally we I like to post at the end of this, uh, you know, at the end of the theme song, sort of like post credits, because Sam and I will record, you know, everything we do up until the start of the episode. Just you know, because it's weird to be like, okay, ready, go. It it seems more natural to just kind of like start without having to press any buttons or anything, but. It's just me today, so we didn't really do that. What I have at the end of this episode is a little special treat. Uh, the last episode we tried to do where the audio didn't come through and we ended up having to do, I had to do another kind of solo episode where Sam called in. Uh, we ended up going to his little recording studio, I use the term very loosely, in his apartment and cutting a little uh, rough, 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 uh, rough original song <laughs> that that you can't really hear lyrics. Sam's saying something about a tiger cobra, I think. But it's got cool riffs, and maybe you'll enjoy listening to it. So that'll be tacked on at the end here. But until then, uh, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. The, the best thing you can do is subscribe. The second best thing you can do is five stars only. We like we like both of those. Uh, and follow us on Wet Bandits Pod. We, we do do some funny things, I think. So if if you like the Instagrams, we do things that'll occasionally give you a little chuckle. Uh, so please follow us on 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 the social medias. Uh, we'll be looking for you there. That's gonna cover it for today. As this is normally where Sam would say bye, and then I'd be like, "What else, Sam?" And he'd be like, "Get wet." Young boys go into the liquor store where they sold their souls. I got a story. A story once was told. Two young boys go into the liquor store where they sold their souls. Hey, yeah. Oh, wow. And I got a
Hey, 
first go. The Taco Cobra. Is that inspired by the Tiger King? No. Dude, it's my shirt, tits. I did not notice that that tiger was also a cobra. Yeah, I thought it. it was just a tiger. No, it's a cobra, dude. 